welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Do you ever feel like your life is missing something? What would happen if you found it, or it found you? Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Kingdom Parables with this sermon entitled Valuing the Kingdom, which covers Matthew chapter 13, verses 44 to 46. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning, Perimeter Church. Today's scripture reading comes from Matthew 13, 44 to 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's read aloud together our prayer of illumination. Almighty God, in you reside all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we approach your written word, Open our eyes to behold the wonders contained within your sacred scripture. By the power of your Holy Spirit, ignite our hearts and minds, that as the words are read and proclaimed, we may receive them with joy and understanding. Guide us in the light of your truth, granting us freedom and peace, and transform us into faithful followers, honoring and glorifying you in all that we do, In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen and amen. Well, I'd like to oftentimes, if you've been with us, you know that I often like to start with a question just to get our thoughts uh, going and and, um, moving us towards the point of the sermon. So let me ask you this question. How does your life point to what you or who you most value? How does your life point to what or who you most value? Tell you a little story that I've told before, but um, I bring it up again just because, at least for me, it reminds me of how true this point can be in terms of what we think we are living among people such that they would see what we value, but yet they perceive something very different. So, uh, several years ago, when my youngest daughter, Annie, was four, she just turned 12 two days ago, but when she was four, uh, we were having some family time and we were actually having a sweet family time. You know, if you're a parent, those don't always happen, where you're having devotion or whatever, and it just kind of happens the way that you hoped it would, where they're actually talking and engaging, and with kids, you, know, you never know if you're gonna get that. In fact, most of the time, you don't. But this particular night, it was a sweet time, and we were sharing with one another who we loved and why we loved them, and this is why I love mom and dad and my sisters and brother, and so on and so forth. And, Annie was sitting on my lap and uh, I was holding her and I just kind of leaned into her and I said, but Annie, who do we love the most? Now, I thought that she would quickly, very understandably go, Jesus. That's not what she said. What she said was, with no hesitation, mind you, and with great emphasis, was Alabama Roll Tide. And I said, that is right. No, I did not say that. I did not say that. No, I didn't say that. In fact, my heart sunk because 
I thought it would have been obvious to her. I mean, your dad is a pastor for crying out loud. No, I thought it would have been obvious to her, to my little four-year-old daughter and the little bit of life that she had lived at that point, that what we value, who we value most is Jesus. But what she had experienced was that it was Alabama. Wow. You know, who or what we most value will eventually, inevitably, be experienced and exposed by those closest to us. Even if we think and say, well, I most value this, maybe it is that that people experience and expose. But far too often, we know this to be true, that what I say I most value and what I live can often be very different. And it's part, it's, it's part of the struggle, right? It's part of walking the walk that we talk, all the things that, you know, all the familiar sayings over the years. But who or what we most value will be experienced, inevitably will be experienced and exposed by those that are closest to us. Now, also with this principle is this. What we value most will inevitably lead us to one of two felt conclusions. Either what we value most will lead us to ultimately to deep disappointment or who or what we value most will lead us to deep joy. Now here's the catch. If we value anyone or anything more then this, what we're gonna be talking about and what we've been talking about in this series, more than the kingdom of God and its king, Jesus. If we value anything or anyone more than Jesus and his kingdom, we will inevitably, maybe not now, maybe not tomorrow, but at some point, we'll be deeply disappointed. Why? Because people let us down. Things let us down. Realities in this life, in this already not yet broken world that we're living in before Christ comes again and makes all things new, everything lets us down except for him. The only person, thing that we value such that it leads us inevitably at every turn to deep joy, maybe not now, but eventually, is Jesus and his kingdom. That's where this parable is leading us, these two parables that we're looking at this morning. It's where it's leading us. And here's the big idea of where these parables are are moving us into, okay, what's, what's the overarching truth? Here it is. The kingdom of God is of inestimable and immeasurable value. Immeasurable value. Such that sacrifice and joy are the predominant markers of possessing it. When we possess the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus, that's how you possess it, by the way. It's nothing you have to do to earn it. No, nothing you have to do to work your way into possessing the kingdom. It's by faith in Christ who gave himself up for us. That in believing upon him by faith, trusting him as Savior and Lord over our lives, the one who reigns and rules for his glory and for our good, when we possess his kingdom internally, that's where the kingdom resides now, is in every believer, then two things predominantly flow out of us as a result of possessing the kingdom. One is sacrifice, which certainly doesn't sound fun, but oddly accompanied with that sacrifice, joy. Sacrifice 
and joy. Listen to this quote by John Piper. He says this, we want you to think, or we want to think and live and act and speak in such a way that we draw attention to the manifold perfections of God. And I think the way we do that best is by being totally satisfied in those perfections ourselves, totally satisfied in God. They mean more to us than money, and more to us than fame, and more to us than sex or anything else that might compete for our affections. And when people see us valuing God that much and his glory being that satisfying, they see that he is our treasure. There's this relationship at play, even in that quote that Piper is teasing out for us, where he's saying, okay, there's a sacrifice involved where I'm giving up certain things that the world would look at and say, well, this is what life is all about, but you're actually sacrificing those things to get a greater joy that to the watching world would be so very confusing at best and bewildering and and even just foolishness. So why why would you live that way? And, And so there's a couple of reminders that we have to remind ourselves about the nature of the kingdom of God. We have to remember that the kingdom is not what we think it is so very often. The kingdom is not what we often want it to be. We have to remember that the kingdom of God, as we understand God's kingdom laid out for us in the pages of scripture and the teachings of Jesus and the apostles and so forth, that as we study this kingdom, as we embrace this kingdom, as we have this kingdom dwelling within us through Christ in us, we begin to realize more and more that it's, it's an upside down kingdom. It's a counterintuitive kingdom. It's rarely what I want it to be. It's rarely what I think it is. Here's what I mean. Typically, human nature is this. If something is going to come in power, because the scripture says that the kingdom of God will come in power, both now and when Christ returns. If something's gonna come in power, that's beautiful. The problem is, is that we begin to define what that power looks like. So if something's gonna come in power, in our world, that typically means through force, through popularity, through some type of something that positions us to be the most influential. Now here's the problem, in this already not yet reality that we're in, already meaning the kingdom has already come, but it's hidden in the believer. It won't come, not yet, it won't come until Christ, it won't come fully until Christ comes again, and then sin will be no more, and Christ will reign forevermore, and it will come in the fullness of power the way that we think it is supposed to come now. But in this in-between stage that we're in, The kingdom of God doesn't come by might. It's not recognized for its might. It's actually in the teachings of Jesus, Sermon on the Mount, Beatitudes, it's not recognized by its might, it's recognized by its meekness, by its humility. It's it's so counterintuitive. And all the ways that we typically think The kingdom of God should come. Church history has showed us time and time again, it doesn't come that way. And when we try to force it with power, whether it be through the state, whether it be through the government, whether it be through some way in which we think this is how it should come, God always says, I have a different plan. It comes through those who are weak, those who are meek, those who are humble, those who are dependent those who are peacemakers. It doesn't sit easy with us. 
It's different. It's not what we think it is. But yet, as we discover it more and more, as we embrace the reality of the kingdom in our lives more and more, we actually find it to be everything that we've longed for. The deep, satisfying joy of our souls. Let me read the text for us again. I know we've already had it read, but short enough this morning that we can read it again. And just for the sake of pressing it, hopefully pressing it more into our hearts. Two parables, here they are. Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, let's take both of these and just give a few thoughts with each one. First one, the kingdom, or sorry, the, uh, the treasure in the field. Treasure in the field, here's how we can sum this one up. Steal from uh, the, the book um, about C.S. Lewis's conversion. Surprised by joy. This is a summation. Surprised by joy might serve as a summation for this parable of the treasure hidden in the field. Because think about what this treasure, or what this parable is telling us about this treasure. It's, it's presupposing those listeners of the first century would have heard Jesus' teaching and they probably would have immediately gotten the vision in their head of someone in a field plowing that field. Now, whoever that may be is presumably not rich. A poor man, a worker of some kind, plowing a field, which would have been his daily task. And he was probably bored with that. In other words, he wasn't searching for treasure. He was just doing his daily routine. As he's going about his business, his plow suddenly strikes something that sounded unfamiliar, felt unfamiliar. So he stops and he gets on his hands and knees and he begins to dig. And as he digs, he discovers the greatest surprise of his life. He sees that it's a chest buried in the ground. And this would have been common in that day, by the way. Uh, in a day and time when you didn't have banks or really anywhere in your house to, to keep things from robbers or ones that might want to take from you, it was very common that you would bury your most valuable things in the ground. But this was no just buried valuables. This was buried treasure. He opens it up and Jewels, rubies, maybe gold itself in this chest, and he is stunned. And so what does he do? The nature, the, the, the language of the parable is it doesn't, he doesn't sit there for a few moments and contemplate, what should I do? He instinctively, just immediately knows what he has to do. And what does he do? He goes and sells all that he has, which wasn't much, but presumably was enough to buy this field, and he goes and sells all that he has. But did you, did you remember the, the three important words that are sandwiched in there? In his joy. In his joy, he goes and lets go of everything else that he has owned until that point so that he can buy this field to possess the treasure that is in the field. Now, do you know how crazy this would have seemed to people who didn't know anything about the treasure? They would have thought he had lost his mind. This is crazy. This person has absolutely lost his mind. He doesn't have much to begin with. And now he's selling everything that he has so that he can buy a field. But now he has no house to live in. He has no possessions of any sort. He just has 
grass, field. What's he going to do with that if he has nothing else? He sold everything that he has. They don't know about the treasure. This is part of the implication of the kingdom of God is that to the watching world who doesn't understand the treasure of Jesus and his kingdom, they're going to watch you give up things for the kingdom of Christ, and they're going to think you're crazy. They're gonna think you've lost your mind. They're gonna think that you have your priorities and your values all out of whack when you understand that in the kingdom of God, they're exactly where they should be. Because they're gonna watch you sacrificing things of this world to attain a greater treasure that is hidden to this world and they're not gonna understand. Now you're gonna teach and preach and proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in such a way to such that their eyes hopefully would be opened. You're gonna tell them about Jesus and the value of his kingdom and hope that they see it with eyes of faith. But if they don't, they're gonna think you're crazy. Can you handle that? Are you okay with that? If you don't have people in your life who think you're crazy, you're probably not living for the kingdom. It means we're fitting into the world too much. It means there's nothing in our lives that distinguishes us as weird kingdom people. Because they go, you just live like I live. I mean, the only thing you do different is you just You kind of do this thing on Sunday morning, but everything else seems the same. There's there's a part of living for the kingdom that is, is a, it's similar to this selling all piece of this guy, right? That that he would sell all and everybody think he's nuts. But you go, no, no, no. (laughs) I know who the treasure is. I haven't sold anything. I've gained everything. You know, since the beginning of time, or so it seems, humanity has been enamored with treasure. Buried treasure, sunken treasure, treasure maps. There's a reason why my favorite movie growing up was Goonies, because I couldn't believe that these kids my age could find one-eyed Willie's treasure. If you haven't seen the movie, I just ruined it for you. They do find one-eyed Willie's treasure. Came out in 85, I don't apologize. You should have seen it by now. But listen to this. United Nations in 2005, they actually did a study that they published where they estimated that at least at that point, there were over 3 million. I had to reread that and check it. Is that right? I thought it was a typo. 3 million undiscovered shipwrecks on our ocean's floors right now. 3 million. Now, certainly not all of those. In fact, very few of them were carrying treasure, but some of them did. And it was enough to uh, grasp or, or to captivate the imagination of treasure hunters to where there are all kinds of treasure hunters who go out and try to find these sunken ships with treasure in them from ages past. Just so happened, if you go back to 1988, this one guy named Tommy Thompson found the wreck of the SS Central America off the coast of South Carolina in 1988, and with it, he brought up a true modern-day treasure. In that wreck, he brought up millions of gold bars, millions. Coins, historic keepsakes, all kinds of things. Now, instead of it being a happily ever after story, it actually ended in a nightmare for him because what ensued was a decades-long battle, legal battle over who were the rightful owners of the treasure. It actually ended with him being in jail. He's still there today. I think that serves as a metaphor, as a picture 
for all of us, because here's the thing, the longing to possess treasure of infinite value is bred into us. But the problem is we long for it and crave it and look for it typically in all the wrong places. And in the same way that Tommy thought, Tommy Thompson thought, man, I have found what I've been looking for. My life will never be the same. He was right. It never was the same, but not in the way that he envisioned. And I think this serves as a picture for us because we tend to buy the lie of what life is all about. Now listen, we live in an unbelievably wealthy area. I don't think anybody in this room just went, what? We know that. And so I think statistically, it's safe to assume that there is at least one person in here right now, watching online, right now, who lives in this area who has bought the lie. Who has bought the lie that the more I can acquire wealth and materials and goods and the bigger I can have houses and the more houses I can own and the more cars that I can have and the more, you know, that this is gonna give me everything that I've longed for in life. Now, please don't mishear me. There is nothing wrong in and of itself of being rich. Nothing wrong with that. It's not sinful. But the Bible says that, the Bible doesn't say the love of money is the root of all, or that money is the root of all evil. It says that the love of money, so what happens is that the more we acquire, the more we begin to value those things as most important. And it will inevitably let us down. It will. If you haven't experienced it yet, you will. It's not what we long for it to be. I mean, listen, listen to some of these quotes from some of the richest people who've ever lived. W.H. Vanderbilt died in the... Uh, in 1885, as the richest man in the world at the time, he said the care of 200 million, which would easily be over a billion now, the care of 200 million is enough to kill anyone. There is no pleasure in it. John D. Rockefeller, first U.S. billionaire and the richest man in modern history said this, I have made millions, but they have brought me no happiness. Andrew Carnegie, second wealthiest man in modern history, millionaires seldom smile. That's what Carnegie said. Henry Ford, Started, founded the great Ford auto industry and empire. He said, I was happier when I was doing a mechanic's job. Look, there's nothing wrong with being rich. Don't hear me saying that. But I tell you what, once we've tasted of that and what it offers, we can begin to believe the lie that this is what we most need. It's going to give me that deep soul satisfaction that I've longed for. And the more we get, the more we realize it's not true. The more we realize it's not true. This life in the kingdom of God, it comes with sacrifice, but that sacrifice carries with it great joy. Listen to William Hendrickson sum it up, this parable, by saying the point of the parable is that the kingdom of heaven, and then he just gives a few caveats as to what that means. It's the glad recognition of God's rule over heart and life, including salvation for the present and for the future for soul and ultimately also for the body, the great privilege of being thereby made a blessing to others for the glory of God. And he could have gone on and on, but he stops there. He says, all this, all this is a treasure so inestimably precious that one who obtains it is willing to surrender for it whatever could interfere with having it. Why? Because it is the supreme treasure because it fully satisfies the needs of the heart. It brings inner peace and satisfaction. This kingdom of God treasure 
It's not found by digging with our hands. It's not found by diving with tanks on our back to find sunken treasure. It's found with eyes of faith. We've been talking about this throughout this whole series. To see and behold through eyes of faith the beauty, the beauty of Jesus. The pearl of great value parable. A little quicker here, but just a few thoughts. We can sum this one up by saying it's the end of searching. Field, the treasure in the field was surprised by joy. This one, the pearl of great value, the end of searching. Doriani says it this way. He says that the parable of the treasure compares the kingdom to a delightful surprise. This parable compares it to the climax of a careful quest. I want you to see the difference, the differences between the two parables in the sense of who the main character is. In the, in the first one, it was a poor person, poor man, farmer, worker, who wasn't looking for treasure, but yet was surprised by it. In this one, it's a rich merchant. A rich merchant who is searching. He's on a diligent quest to find. He, he knows what, what valuable pearls look like, and he's looking to find the most valuable, the one of infinite, immeasurable value. So what is... I think we can put these two together and go, okay, well, what does this mean? It means that the kingdom of God is for all people, poor, rich, those searching, those not searching. God is for everyone in the sense that all, all can be in the kingdom of God. I want you to think about this though. The context of this one is not a field, it's a market, a pearl market, which means as he's looking for that one, that one pearl of great value, as he's looking for it, it means he's bypassing lots of other valuable pearls. Lots of other valuable pearls, meaning here's the application. There are many things in this life that are valuable, that we need to honor is valuable, but that as soon as we think that they're the most valuable thing in our lives, that's when we're in trouble because they're not. And the easiest example of this is our kids or grandkids. Unbelievably valuable. We love them with everything we've got till it hurts. And we can't imagine losing any of our kids or grandkids. I, I, I pray for my kids constantly. I can't imagine loving anything or anyone more than my kids. But when I begin to value them more than I value the kingdom of God, I'm out of line with what God would have for me in terms of the priority of the kingdom. And I will inevitably be disappointed. Why? Because my kids, just like me, just like I'll let them down, they'll let me down. We disappoint each other. People disappoint each other. And so when we value people or relationships or money or whatever it may be more than the kingdom, it will end in deep disappointment, not deep joy. And so what do we do though? We struggle with this and this is a real struggle, but I tell you, listen, this is the most touchy point that I could possibly apply this. I understand this, okay? What I'm about to say. But, but I think it's, it's needed because we wrestle with it. Rachel and I wrestle with it. We struggle with this. We, we, we fight the culture in this way, but, and we, we, we often fail, okay? Just hear that. But I'll tell you this. Because of the value that we put on our kids in modern-day culture that the church has bought into as well, the Sabbath, Sunday mornings, are getting sacrificed over the glory of our kids on a ball field. They are. We forsake without even thinking about it, without even, 
Without a second thought, we forsake the corporate gathering of the people of God to receive the sacraments of God, to receive the preached word of God, to be sung over by the people of God, to help each other believe the gospel more. This corporate gathering is infinitely important in the kingdom of God to help us delight in God more. And we say, I don't really care. I'll make it when I make it. And I realize I'm preaching to the choir, you're here. But I'm just saying, listen, I know I'll get emails. I, I just, that'll happen. But it, it matters, and we got to talk about it. And I know it's a battle. I'm not saying it's, it's an easy plug and play. Rachel and I struggle with this because our kids have activities on Sundays. We battle with it, and we failed, and we make bad decisions. But are we even fighting? Are we even in the battle of what value, what, what, what has most value in the kingdom of God? Do we think God knows what's best for us? Do we really believe that or do we think we know what's best for us? There's always sacrifice as we embrace the kingdom, always, but with it joy that we wouldn't expect. There's numerous examples of people recorded in the Bible as having found the value of Christ and his kingdom after searching for it. Cleopas, the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, Lydia, the Philippian jailer, the Bereans, the list goes on. People who uh, weren't surprised by joy. They were searching and they were miserable and they wanted to be satisfied and they finally found it in Jesus. We think about Justin the martyr, second century philosopher who was brilliant for his time. He, he had gone to all the philosophy, uh, philosophy schools and had garnered so much knowledge and he was so esteemed by his peers and he was miserable. And one day this old man told him about Jesus he began to search the scriptures and he found Jesus to be everything he promised to be. He gave his life to Christ and he became a joyful Christian, so much so that he earned that name, martyr. He sacrificed his life for the glory of Christ. What about you? What's your story? What's your search? What's your treasure? Some of us, some of us, some of us have found Jesus to be that valuable treasure that he is, but have recently allowed lesser treasures to take occupancy of our hearts. So this morning, we just repent and turn back to Jesus and say, you're the king. I'm so sorry, you're the king. Others of us, we haven't been on that journey such that we've discovered him to be who he is. And so maybe this morning, maybe this is the time where you, with eyes of faith, believing upon Christ, you see him. And this hidden kingdom that the world can't see takes root in you and you're transformed, starting now. What about selling all? Should we take that literally? Like, are we literally supposed to go sell all? Now, for some, I think, yeah. I mean, God's gonna say that and we should be open to it. But I think for most, no, it just means this. That, that phrase, selling all, just means this. Just understand that possessing the kingdom of God will never come without sacrifice. It will always come with sacrifice, always. But know this, that sacrifice will always come with unexpected joy. Maybe not immediately, but it will come. Maybe not fully in this life, but it will come. The kingdom of God never comes without sacrifice, but it always comes, that sacrifice always comes with joy. It makes me think of in our home right now, we have two dogs. We have a little dog that annoys the mess out of me. and. 
she follows Rachel everywhere. She's attached to Rachel. If Rachel walks into a room, you can know that Daisy is going to follow soon thereafter. Sometimes right on the heels, sometimes a little delay. But if Rachel is coming into the room, she will come too. I want you to think about that. It never comes without sacrifice. But if sacrifice comes into the room, joy will come with it. Father, help us to believe that. Help us to understand the nature of the kingdom of God and all of its immeasurable value that we would know and understand that as great as some of the things in this world are, some of the gifts that you've given us, some of the greatest, deepest relationships, joys that we have in this life, may we appreciate them as such. They are glorious and good. But Lord, help us to understand nothing. Nothing compares to you in your kingdom. We, um, we come to this table. We do this once a month in here. We do it every week in our other venues. There's a debate. There's a debate among, among people who debate these kind of things. You may hear this, what I'm about to say, and go, who debates that? But there's a debate. What is the high and holy moment of the service? Is it the sermon or is it the sacrament? I have opinions. So I'll leave them there for now. But I'll say for this morning, I think it's this. I think it's this table. Here's why. Because I really haven't told you all that much. In this sermon, we've talked a lot about the kingdom. We haven't talked a ton about the king, but don't miss this. Don't miss this. There is no kingdom if there is no king. Who is the treasure? The treasure is Jesus. Who is that one pearl of great price, of great value? It's Jesus. The kingdom is valuable because Jesus is of immeasurable value. We're able to possess the kingdom because Jesus gave up his life for us. He, he took on the wrath of our sin as if it were his, and he gave us his righteousness as if it were ours. What this table represents is the cross. Jesus bleeding to death on a cross so that you and I could possess the kingdom and know him, the king. He is, a, is a, a, of infinite value. And so as we come to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, this communion table, we're, we're reminded not just that the kingdom is value, but that he, <laughs> he is the treasure. And in him, in him alone, our hearts, our wondering hearts, our longing hearts, our searching hearts, they're satisfied in Christ. There's nothing special about this bread, this wafer that's in here. There's nothing special about the juice. They represent the body and the blood of Christ. We don't believe that the body, that the, that the bread literally becomes the body of Christ or the juice becomes his blood. But we do believe that the Holy Spirit is doing a work, mysteriously so, among us as we take these, nourishing our souls, strengthening us by his grace for this life that he's called us to of sacrifice and joy. If you're not a believer, we would ask you not to take this because the scripture says to not eat and drink judgment upon yourself. If you're not repentant, if you, ha if you haven't 
If you've been in a pattern of sin that you don't think is wrong or that you haven't repented over, use this time to pray and say, God, would you soften my heart? But listen, listen, this table, this table is for broken people. This table is for sinful people who need to be reminded that there is nothing you can do. Hear this, please don't miss this. There is nothing you can do to out the grace of God. So take and eat and drink and experience the grace of God for you. On the night that Christ was betrayed, He took the bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that covers all our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.